There we go. There we Are go. you all back on America time now? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, wait, I forgot water. Um, yeah, pretty much. And the, there is a place, Danielle said she ran the jet lag protocol and that helped. And it, the problem with the jet lag protocol is it, it really should, it really depends. I stopped using it because it depends on which way you're going. So there is a place for drugs. So when, when you go to Europe, so I arrived in Poland on, uh, flew on the first, arrived on the second. Um, they walked my legs off on the third and on the fourth, I was lecturing. That's pretty tight, even for you. What? Well, but in 2000 in the green room um, at IFM, one of the speakers asked another speaker, and I'm eavesdropping, and he says, how do you do this international travel thing? I'm just like dying here. And the guy said, oh, it's easy. You take hydrocortisone, which is an adrenal replacement. It's not like a medrol dose pack. It's not steroids. It is a physiologic dose of cortisol, which your adrenals don't get around to for about four or five days after you get someplace. Wow. So you take a physiologic dose just so you can set the alarm and get up in the morning. You take that in the morning and then you drug yourself to sleep at night. Even if you don't use sleep medication at home, your body thinks it's two o'clock in the afternoon and it's really nine o'clock at night where you are. And so you use a super physiologic dose of melatonin and you use Ambien or whatever you're going to use to knock yourself out and you knock yourself out. And by day two or three, you're done, you're functional. And you can actually, if you have to be, you can be functional the second day. So there's a reason that God invented drugs and FSM. This is a very, or once again, very organic segue into one of the things I wanted to talk about today with my big fat list. Um, the lists are getting very extensive because we're getting a lot of really good feedback from people, but I love that part. one of the things I think it's really important that you do such a great job of all the time is FSM is not a replacement for things, right? Medications, surgeries, Nope. Braces, you name it. Nope. We are an adjunct. Yep. We can speed things up or slow things down. We are not a, um, so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We are standalone. Yeah. Something like that. Um, you know what I'm trying to get at? Well, it's, I just did a webinar for IFM yesterday, I think, a long time ago. Anyway, did a webinar for IFM and explained to functional me medicine practitioners, and we have probably a quarter of our practitioner base started out as functional medicine practitioners and came to FSM or find a way of combining nutritional medicine and FSM and medication and FSM. And the problem with functional medicine is that it, in general, 
it's a perfect way to practice, but used by itself, it costs too much and it takes too long. And so patient compliance is really pretty horrible. You tell the patient, yeah, look, I've got these six supplements that you want to take in this one prescription. And in about six weeks, you're going to feel about 20 to, you're going to feel better. And they go, uh-huh. Okay, sure. Sure. Of course. Uh-huh. Right. So now these days, IFM has these life coaches that will help you do that. And still, if you actually did the metrics, there's 40 to 50% of the patients that don't follow through. There's one of my, one of our faculty said one year, it is easier to change somebody's religion than it is to change their diet. Isn't that the truth? What? Yes. Okay. So when you use FSM as an adjunct, you listen to the patient's history and you go, oh, poor thing. Your belly really hurts. Would you mind? This thing is, this is microcurrent and it's, it's really good at reducing inflammation. And let's see if it makes your belly feel any better. So you put your precision care or even a custom care with SIBO. You put your precision care on their tummy and you run, um, uh, let's just say we run the, basically the SIBO protocol. And the patient goes from bloated and a pain level of a five down to flat tummy and a pain level of a two. Now you have their attention. And then when you tell them, okay, I need you to eliminate for six weeks gluten. I love gluten. I understand, but it's why your belly hurts. Let's just, you've been sick for six years. So just Cut me some slack here. Your, what's your pain level right now? It's a two. Okay, now will you believe me? Okay. No gluten, no milk. Really, I loved. Okay, fine. No gluten, no milk for how long? Six weeks. I, I can do that. And I'm going to start you on these two supplements. And I want you to take them for six weeks. And I want to see you in three days, and then I want to see you once a week for six weeks. And because, and at this point, I've already presented all the cytokine data, the LOX data, the COX data, the wound healing data, the ATP data. And when you run FSM on somebody's belly, you, you stop. Sorry, knew I forgot something. Hang on. Yes, so we're going to put it on airplane mode because we're on flight cam. So then you start from a different place, but that thing we talk about every single every single segment of every single course is creating a stable state. We can produce instantaneous changes, but the reason that water is a solid is that the surrounding environment is zero degrees. And the reason water is a liquid is because the surrounding environment is one to 99 degrees and steam, blah, blah, blah. 
So the reason the patient's belly pain goes down is that I ran the frequencies for inflammation and allergy reaction and uh, gut bugs, bad bugs. I ran all that. Is that going to stay? No. It'll stay for maybe two days. But they have to create the environment that keeps it that way. Right. Right? So there and, and that can be such a challenging component depending on the demographic that you're working with. You tell an athlete that is a hundredth of a second away from joining an Olympic trial that he needs to cut out gluten, drink some water, do some more exercises. That's done. That's he's doing that on the way to the car, leaving your clinic. Absolutely. Somebody else, like you said, it's like changing their religion. So part of what we talked about last week was um, patience, right? Like waiting part of that. I think we have to have our own patience with our patients because changing their diet can seem like such a black or white thing that we're telling our patients to do, because we know it will mitigate inflammation. It will make them feel better. It will change their life. If they would only just stop putting that stuff in their mouth. The trick of that after 25 years of failures, there are, there are some secrets. You ready for the secret? Yes. Everybody get a pen and paper. Ready? It's easy. One thing for six weeks. You've been sick for how many years? Well, ever since I was whatever. So we're talking 17 years you've been sick. You've had belly pain for how many years? Oh yeah. You've had body pain for how many years? Okay. You're gonna give me six weeks? Okay, I can do, I say you can do anything for six weeks. Okay, six weeks. One thing maybe two if you're really motivated. Okay, what's the one thing? Gluten, take it out. Now, if that's too hard, we're gonna do a cheek swab test that's gonna cost you $249. And we're gonna get data back that says you have the gene that makes you gluten sensitive. I'm fine with doing the test. It's like it's a cheek swab. It's a piece of cake. Let's do that. And then after you get the cheek swab back, then will you give me six weeks? Okay. That's, that's the first thing. You give them one thing. Handing somebody six bottles of different supplements, never going to work. Like, I hate to tell you. I mean, I, three is sort of the max. So there's that. And then... There's this one magic thing that I found out this week. And it is this patient that I saw five years ago. And I remember her because she was this little spitfire. She has a, a quit smoking program that she has started and created, has great success value and very positive, very upbeat, right? And she comes in and she's got this pain diagram and I'm looking at her and going, that's 40 and 10. And she has a custom care. And then she's had all these x-rays and all these tests. And then, then I felt her and she said, my left knee is killing me. Well, then I felt her hamstrings. 
and our pectineus and our brevis. And it's like, that's 81 and 10. Huh. And then there's this and there was that. And it's like, okay. So I treated the knee, but I treated 40 and 10, reduce inflammation in the cord to reduce the body pain. And around 81 and 10 to reduce the tightness in the legs. And that took the crushing off of the knee. Then I treated the knee and yeah, her pain was like this. And while she's being treated, I say, by the way, what was your childhood like? Now I've got concussion in Vegas running. And I said, what was life like? Oh, this and this and this and this. And mm-hmm. At which point I grabbed another precision care and hooked it up from her neck to her belly or neck to her feet. So now she's got three machines, neck to feet, and around 40 and 89, because she had that kind of childhood, around 40 and 89. And she went, it's like you just gave me 10 milligrams of Valium. And then I explained to her about central sensitization and how your brain is used to being in pain, it's used to it. And the real question is, can you learn to accept yourself as a happy, pain-free person? That's, that's the next six weeks. Then I went to reprogram because she came to get her custom care reprogrammed because she had all this knee pain and her legs and her arms. Do you know I had all that stuff on her custom care? I had 40 and 10, I had tight legs. So I added knee pain and I put 40 and 89 in absolutely everything that I ran on her for top 10. And then her job, because she's used to doing jobs, her job in the next six weeks before I see her again is to run those programs, keep her pain below a four and decide if she can learn to accept herself as a happy, pain-free person. And she went, I never thought of that. So for her, the stable state has nothing to do with gluten or dairy or going for a walk. It's who am I if I'm not under threat or in pain or under stress? Who am I? So that became her homework. That's a very interesting question. And we never have these conversations for those of us who are working with athletes. We never have to go down that road. Those of us who are seeing chronic pain patients. And now my practice is a healthy mixture of both, depending on which week it is. Um, but it's sometimes hard for me to switch, switch gears because I'm so used to having to pull back the athletes who want to push their recovery before it's maybe safe. A lot of times they're not really scared um, to move it. They're not scared of the absence of pain. They're, they've pushed that to the side. Now, some athletes and some people 
who are working with range of motion, I'm starting to implement 40 and 89 before they even get off the table. Because you can see if you're very good at watching their face and not their extremity, yes. you will see that split second where there's sheer terror and panic in their eye before they even elicit a muscle contraction. It happens in that moment right before you take your hands or right after you take your hands off of them. And, and right when, gone. yes, because they go, no, I am not afraid, but they really are. They really are. So we as practitioners really have to gauge much more with our words, the way we're looking at the patient before they move and the, the story they bring to the injury as well, right? Like, yes, you have to ask about all those things about their diet and the injury and the medication, but the emotional components about their injury. And they tell you, you don't have to put this on a patient form. They will tell you with the story, how they're feeling about this moment in time. And that's, and that honestly, that's why you need a precision care. Yeah. Because as they're talking, you have to adjust, you go, Oh, that's, that's 40 and 84. They talk some more. It's like, no, that's 40 and 99. And then 40 and 92. Okay, fine. I get that. And then they're talking some more. And then, oh, 970 and 27. Okay, that is an emotion. But emotions are made in the brain with neurotransmitters. Right. I had so much fun this week. Not as much fun as me, but I'll let you go first. Okay. Knee replacement. Emergency room doctor. On his feet. Four tens right? And a knee replacement. It's swollen. It was done in October. This is July. So should be all better. Swollen, range of motion, short. Did I already tell you the story? No, no. I told, somebody, told Sandra the story. The range of motion um, it was not 130. It was maybe 115. So he was a good 10 to 15 degrees short of the range of the other one inflection. And um, so I did the first thing you do when there's swelling in a joint replacement or pain in a joint replacement that lasts longer than six weeks is metals allergy. His knee replacement is cobalt. And it's like, okay. And I looked up percentage of people that are allergic to cobalt about 27%. So it's like, okay, sorry. So I ran 16 and the bone marrow. Is the cerebellum going to let you bend a knee when it, right? Mm -mm. And is the immune system happy with a metal that is permanently implanted? No. So we did that. But then at the same time, because he's medical, and I get lonely when I don't do seminars and I don't have medical geeks to talk to, except for on Wednesdays. Um, and so I explained to him, you know, that slide that's in the core now that shows how the nociceptive nerve or even the proprioceptive nerve that turns into a nociceptive nerve goes from the knee to the spinal cord. That nerve becomes sensitized to pain messages 
that goes up the spinal cord, that sensitizes the pain pathways, that gets to the brain, that sensitizes the thalamus, that goes to the sensory motor cortex and actually expands the piece of the sensory and motor cortex that used to be used to be this big for the knee is now this big for the knee because the knee hurts. Okay, this is going on for five years before it gets around to get it replaced. So I set up 40 and 10 to quiet the sensitization in the cord. I ran one from his low back to his knee to quiet the sensitization in that nerve. And I ran 40 and 89, also on the same neck to feet towel. And after the 40 and 89, once his face and his body relaxed, then I quieted down the sensory cortex to get that. And I, I can't help myself. I talked my way through it and explained to him what I was doing. And he said, that makes so much sense, right? And then um, if you think of, oh, then they had done a manipulation under anesthesia to break up the scar tissue that was preventing it. That's a good face, I'm really sorry. And so then I did, we we're already doing quiet the inflammation in the nerve because they, the nerve, when they, the knee. And I did torn and broken in the connective tissue. So I got, he had specific sore spots in the knee. And I opened up netter and it's like, look at that. That's all connective tissue. So I did torn and broken in the connective tissue and I explained what happened. And then there was this one little spot and it was, I tried torn and broken in the periosteum and then metals allergy in the periosteum because it was along the tibial plateau. And it's just like, it, and it was all with a precision care. You think your way through it with your fingers. And I know you didn't mean for me to talk that long, but it, isn't that cool? That is, oh, I love that stuff because whether or not you're treating a knee injury or an ACL repair, anytime there's metal being introduced to the body, this is the way you have to think about it. It's not just 40 and 480. It's not just inflammation in the joint capsule. That inflammation just didn't come from, from the surgery. Like you have to kind of think your way through the surgery. There's tearing and breaking in the periosteum. There's the metal component. 20, what did you say? 25% has a allergy or something like that? I think every, every metal has a different percentage of allergies. There's something like 40% of people are allergic to chromium, which is in stainless. 17% wow. are allergic to titanium. Uh, titanium. I've never heard of a cobalt implant. Oh, by the way, by the way, we got him to 120 doing all that stuff. And then it occurred to me, what has to happen for you to bend your knee when you've got this metal spike up in your bone marrow? Well, everything has to kind of be able to move a little bit. We went from 120 to 127 when I ran scarring in the bone marrow. And that is scarring in the bone marrow is one that doesn't always 
come on my radar when I'm working with joints. I, I why would it? I would never have thought of it except my massage therapist ran it on me after my hip replacement when she couldn't get my TFL to let go. Hmm. And then she did something with the blue box. And I said, what did you just do? She said, scarring in the bone marrow. I, I still didn't get that, but that way of thinking his TFL was tight. And it's like scarring in the bone marrow. Then when I rechecked his range of motion after got the TFL went smushy, we had seven degrees out of scarring in the bone marrow. It's very interesting. Do you know what my nickname for TFL is? Do you know what I call a TFL? Okay, what? Little Napoleon. Oh, yeah. Because he's just that little um, guy. Mm-hmm. But that's really, really, really interesting. That's a whole other... Again, it's following that spark, thinking your way through, not just what you're seeing in the present time, but what were the events that led you up to this moment? And what are all the things that we have stuff we can do? And then it held, by the way. He came back the second visit and the swelling was completely gone. He said, there is no pain anymore. It's, there's no pain. It's an ache. He's an athlete. And so he's really good at pain suppression. Yeah. And so it's a two on the ache scale. So that's, that's my, you have to tell me your story now, though. It's, it's, it's a bunch of knees actually. So it's really, it's really funny. I, for me, it's the time of year where I see a ton of triathletes, a ton of marathon runners. There's all these races coming up. So a lot of it is overuse. Um, but it was a 40 and 89 moment where this was an athlete who was dying to get better. And we're working when you have an athlete, you're working in small ranges, right? Like you're, whether you're actually measuring it or you're eyeballing it, um, or you're looking at strength, it's, it's like losing those last five pounds. Like they can, and they're frustrated because they're almost there, but they're not quite there. And I would have never thought about running 40 and 89 with this type of athlete because she was so motivated to get ready for this race. I didn't think she was afraid and she's a a trail runner. She like comes up all beat up. Like she's not afraid of anything, but her thalamus, they don't get, you don't get the boat. Right. And so that, that was your voice that I heard. And it's like, well, just because she's not aware of the fear doesn't mean the fear is not there. And again, like I talk about this all the time, what we do sometimes happens so fast. We are undoing scar tissue faster than any modality I've ever worked with in 23 years. It, it, it is we are creating more change than our nervous system knows what to do with. It thinks there's no possible way I'll be able to elicit this much range of motion or this much strength. So we talk a lot about undoing scar tissue and increasing range of motion passively, but another big component is eliciting the strength to get that active contraction range of motion. Which is the ability to quiet the thalamus down and then increase secretions in the cerebellum, the spinal cord, the nerve, and then go back up to the sensory and motor cortex 
wait, you mean that's my knee now? Exactly. So first you tell the sensory and motor cortex, no, your knee is really this big, not that big. And if that's 40 and 92, and then you go down, you quiet down the thalamus, then you quiet down the cerebellum, then you turn up the cerebellum, then you turn up the spinal cord, turn up the nerve, then you go back up and you turn up the sensory and motor cortex. It's like, oh, oh, my knee. Oh, you want me to, oh, sure. And that's, that's the change that's happened in the core and the advanced, but more the core in the last five years, especially, is I used to get so excited about being able to dissolve scar tissue, treat nerve pain, relieve adhesions in the nerve. But then you have, I, I was trusting the nervous system to be able to get used to it. And now that we can do all that in a 60 minute period, as long as you have three machines, it's just like, isn't that cool? This is, this is what I do every day. Like this is, this is the important part. And it's, it's funny because patients will thank you like halfway through because the pain gets better. The range of motion improves because you've undone the scarring, which needs to happen first, because you'll, it doesn't matter how good we are at manipulating the nervous system. If there's scarring preventing the range, it's never going to happen. So there is that basic fun stuff that that never gets old, right? Smush, taking someone's pain away. Going from this to that. Right? That never gets old. And then I and took the patient's hand and did this. And <laughs> like, just like, and she just. <laughs> She's like, is that my hand? Yes, it's yours. What's it doing up there? Right? <laughs> but I'll always say, well, well, don't thank me yet. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, this is just a party trick right now. Like we have to get it all connected and working and lasting. Otherwise this is all for nothing. If you come back in two days and you're, you're back to this again, that doesn't do anything. And that's where the nervous system, that whole loop that we were just talking about, that's that, that link that nobody else like can do. They really can't. Not all in uh, not, not in sixty minutes. Sixty minutes. They, no. they can do it, but it takes two months. And it's like, so you do it in sixty minutes, and but then I gave him exercises because he's an athlete and he's an ER doc. So it's like this is, and you look at his knee, and because the the majority of the tearing from the manipulation under anesthesia was on the medial side of the patella. His vastus medialis was just gone. Just like, nope, okay. So I want you, if you've got a one pound weight, not a two pound weight, because you could see in his eyes, it's like, I've got a five. No, 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 one pound. Okay, put sand in a sock and tie it around your ankle. Okay, one pound of sand in a sock, got it. And then externally rotate your leg and just do quad sets while you're sitting there doing emails at night or watching TV or whatever. Yeah, that. And he came back and there's his vastus medialis. And then I see him one more time. And then I said, then I went, let's give it two weeks and see if it holds. If it holds, then the immune system can take a joke. It's like, haha, we have a cobalt joke. And then you'll be fine. Then you can come just see me once every six months, just because 
it's fun. Here's a question for you. Do patients typically know what metal is being used in their um, replacements? That's not something that I... Some of us do. I, I ask. Yeah. I mean, obviously I ask because I know I'm allergic to everything but titanium, but right. I don't know. I don't know if they ask. It's just kind of interesting. As a, as a mom now of a daughter that's got some metal in her, um, that was one of the first things I ran post-operatively was, let's just get this out of the way. What metal? That's a good question. I'm going to go look at the uh, surgical notes. you? It's, I've got a very comprehensive surgical play-by-play. Yeah, of, yeah. The surgeon is amazing. I want to just hang I'm, out with him. Oh, good. Um, so I'm going to take a peek. And, he, you're amazing? Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, no, I'm, I'm a bit tiger mom. I, I have a hard time, um, not being that mom sometimes. And then I'm also that practitioner that asks tough questions like, but why have you ever asked a doctor, but why, why is that? Where did that come from? Is this a study that you learned in med school or has that changed? Yeah. You don't, they don't typically, automatically get labeled surgeon well and surgeons there with that the er doc and i talked about the different characteristics that go with different medical professions there are surgeons there are i said your life could be worse you could be an internist you want rheumatologist ooh, right it's like and surgeons are don't ask I'm a carpenter. I do this. This is what I do. Right. And it's, it's very interesting to see surgeons post-op recommendations versus, uh, five or six PTs post-ops recommendations. And somewhere the answer is in the middle of these six people weighing in. Um, and we're just going to have to navigate our own way because, people are so used to sticking to the literature that was written so long ago and not looking at real world data. So I'm, I'm all for the science. I don't claim to be a surgeon, but I've seen things in rehab that defy scientific explanation. And once you see something like that, just one time, I think it's worth asking a question. Well, why are we sticking to these parameters? Says who? Like, where did it come from? And I think patients, we sh- patients who are listening, you should ask questions mm-hmm. and get multiple opinions. I'm all for getting many people to work on one patient. I love sending my patients to a chiropractor, a vestibular person, a different type of dentist, a natural path. Everybody needs to work together. What made you laugh? Different type of dentist? No. <laughs> When I had, remember when I blew the, herniated the disc in my neck in 11. And um, so I come back, somebody finally does a Babinski on me in, in early December of 2011. My right one is down going. My left one is florid. I've never seen one, like even on the internet, I've never seen a Babinski as positive as my left Babinski. And it's like, okay, fine. It's going to be fine. So that test was done, I think, on Wednesday. Thursday at lunchtime, I called and I had appointments with three different, one orthopedic surgeon, 
now three neurosurgeons. Two on, I got back on Monday, so I had two appointments Tuesday, one on Wednesday. And I made appointments with three different neurosurgeons. And I, the, the first one, um, his medical assistant didn't know how to do reflexes. She didn't check Babinski. And when he came in, he said, yep, this is these, this, obviously here's your imaging. We need to do this, this, this for the disc. And your C7 nerve root is um, the conduction is slow. So she, we should at the same time as the C5667 disc surgery, at the same time, we should move your ulnar nerve. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll get back to you. Next surgeon. Oh, we should do this and this. I really love this guy. The first time I could, this is December uh, 14th at this point. The first surgery date I have open is January 12th. You don't leave a positive Babinski positive for that long. Love you. Bye. The next surgeon, my spinal cord was peanut shaped. Now it's supposed to be round. The disc herniated right into the middle of my spinal cord. So my spinal cord is now peanut shaped. And this guy took me out in the hallway threw the film up because that's back in the day when you actually had, you know, film. The light, yeah. Three, threw the film up and he said, wow. Okay, then. Um, and I said, how are you going to get that disc out of the middle of my spinal cord? He turned and he looked at me and he said, very carefully. I said, that's the right answer. You're my guy. When, when can you do this? He said, this was now Tuesday. He said, how about Monday? I said, sold. That was it. Yeah. But you took three different opinions. Right. And you go with the one that will talk to you. More or less, every surgeon is technically competent if they've been in practice for more than five years. You don't, you don't touch anybody that had everybody listening and everybody patients who's listening. You don't talk to anybody who's a surgeon who's been in practice for less than five years because you don't want to be their learning curve. No. 10 years, then you're good. So they're 10 years in practice. And then you go with the one that you can talk to. And that will talk to you and listen. That's the guy. Yeah. That's that's my principle of decision making. And then, well, never mind. No. Okay. So after George's hip replacement, um, his left leg was swollen all the way down. And we went for our two-week post-op checkup. And I said, his leg is swollen. And the PA didn't see the surgeon. The PA said, oh, he's had a hip replacement. I said, I've had hip replacements. The leg doesn't look like that. No, no, that's really common. 
two weeks later, legs still swollen. Then he had atrial fib, so we went to the naturopath, cardiologist, and I said, his leg swollen. Well, he had his hip replaced. His leg is swollen. Okay, fine. We'll do a D-dimer test. I can't remember what D-dimer normally is. It was like 0.5, and his was 3.5. Then I finally got somebody. I was about ready to order the ultrasound myself. Finally got somebody to have an ultrasound. He had a DBT from his groin to his ankle. Oh. oh. Leg was swollen. Oh. And the surgeon missed it three times. So. So ask questions and don't settle for it's nothing. Yeah, pretty much. I, I love it when my patients ask questions. We had this conversation a little while ago. Do we call, like, there is a study about would patients prefer to be called clients versus patients? Because patients it had this inference of pain and suffering and also that um, they didn't have a choice in their rehab where clients felt more, I'm paying you to help me. I'm part of this team. Collaborative. Um, Exactly. So I love it when the people who come to see me ask questions because I want them to feel part of the process. They have to be invested in part of the process more so more than just coming and flopping down on the table for 60 minutes. And with me, it's even worse because I'm a teacher and sometimes they actually don't get to vote. I, I love for them to ask questions but I talk my way through it and then it's like, okay, does that make sense to you? What did I miss? Where are, how are you doing? That you ask them to ask questions because then at the end, when you ask for buy-in, when you tell them to do something or ask them to do something, you have, you have a collaborative process. Right. And like, I said in the what, IFM webinar, once you get their pain from a six to a two, you have their attention and you improve patient compliance and that improves outcomes. So. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting measure. I mean, we, we always, you always talk to your patients the first time you see them, you just don't want to make them worse. Right. We all have a different way that we explain it. I always say, I just want to make a dent in this thing. Right. And, you know, like, and I've always sort of been in the camp where you want to undersell and over deliver because right. especially with chronic pain patients, they have probably seen and heard and have been promised the moon. So we want to just kind of stay here but I'm working on a document that goes with the waiver in the patient history about what my expectation is to take on this patient. Ooh, I like that. And for me, it's been very helpful having these discussions when I do like my telemedicine first visit to say, you know, asking them the questions, what do you hope to get out of treatment with me? How do you think I can help you? And if they're listing all these things, then my next question is, 
how willing are you to make certain changes? Because for this to be collaborative, it can't just be me just investing in them. They have to do more than just the financial investment and showing up for an appointment. Right. So. Well, and you get a clue about why it is that people are still unwell. Right. Find out that all of the care that they have had for the last 15 years has been passive. Right. No one has given them exercises. Right. No, right. It's all been passive care, especially in physical medicine. And it's just like, okay, fine. All right. Yeah. Right. So guy has low back pain and he said so much better since I started doing Pilates. He's uh, 78 and he just started doing Pilates about six months ago. Makes his low back pain better. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's a question, Kim, can I get a copy of your intake? I like the questions you just asked. Yeah, for sure. When I'm done drafting it, I'd be happy to post it somewhere on my website because it has been a bit of a work in progress and I, they're just guidelines because you can't ask the same questions to a professional hockey player, football player that you do with a seven-year-old chronic pain patient. Like there's a bit of, of flow, but in both, you know, even with your professional athletes, well, what's your expectation working with me? Oh, I heard you got somebody back from uh, rotator cuff surgery in two weeks. And I want to be back in one week. That's unrealistic. That's an unrealistic expectation. So, you know, you have to, and I think asking some of those questions, sometimes these patients have never been asked that. What do you, what do you mean? What do I want? I want to be better. Yeah. But how? move better, sleep better, pain down, yeah, um, all that, all of that. Right. And again, like, what are you willing to invest in this process or, or how long do you think this is going to take? That's also a question that I've been, I've like been asking that. them. Yeah. 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 And then if they're like two visits, because you fixed my friend in, in two visits, well, your friend had a sprained wrist and you've had seven concussions. So we're talking about, two separate things. Well, yeah. Walnuts and apples. It's like, no different. Totally. So, I mean, I don't know, we're all learning here. So I I'm learning with all my patients. Like it's, um, yeah, nothing is cookie cutter. That's right. John, like even from your intake to the way that you treat it, no knee is the same and no frozen shoulder is the same. And again, I'm going back to like talking about how great I think the course has has changed in the past five, 10 years is it's gone from a template list of frequencies. And I still get weekly emails. What's your recipe for a frozen shoulder or how to like, what's your recipe for a sprained ankle? Well, these are guidelines. There, there isn't one. <laughs> right. You know, think about the mechanism of the action. What tore, what broke, when did the pain start? Well, okay. What happened a year before that? Um, how many times have they sprained it? Exactly. Right. Like talking about concussions. Well, I I've never, I had this, um, I had this answer from a professional hockey player. I've never had a concussion. I go, I hate to break it to you. You get a concussion. Every time you step on the ice, you get a concussion. Every time you get traded, every time you move climates, every time like, it, and there's 
Like it's just different ways of thinking of things. You, you go from like a standard model that we thought of 30 years ago that you had to have loss of consciousness in order to have a concussion to what we know now about flexion extension injuries, mimicking concussion symptoms. I mean, creating concussion symptoms, long track in, totally. in the medulla, like right. axonal injuries in the medulla that go to every place. Right. It's just, it, I, I, I'm still stuck on the, you know, a professional hockey player that thinks he's never had a concussion. Is there a professional hockey player? Well, is there a hockey player who has never fallen or been right, whatever checked and then hit the boards, hit the ice, gets up and skates again. Right. So you hit your head. That's that counts. Right. Right. But again, it goes back to those metrics, right? Everybody's pain scale is different. Everybody's um, expectation for treatment is different. Going back to the concussion, I had a patient, not a professional athlete, but an active person and on the concussion form, didn't fill any of that stuff out. I'm like, so you've, you've never had a head or neck injury ever. And this is somebody in their mid forties. She's like, no, I'm like, you've never been in a motor vehicle accident. She's like, oh yeah. You've never fallen down the stairs as a kid. Oh yeah. I remember like I was laid out probably for like half the afternoon before my brother woke me up. I'm like, okay. So, (laughs) and that was, that was a true story. She's like, oh yeah, I I remember that. Yeah. I think I was passed out most of the day at the bottom of the stairs. Excuse me while I add this (laughs) practically typing. (laughs) And then there's, then there's the, the, the element of grace that you have to not call the patient an idiot. It's like to, to just say, Oh, okay. Well, I can see why you'd forget that. (laughs) Quietly pivot on your stool. (laughs) Write this and try not to have your judgy face on. Uh, No judgy faces. It's like, okay. Oh yeah. I remember that time. Right. So again, going back to your history, while it's great to send forms out ahead of time, like I, I try to spend more time verbally going through them because you can't, you, you can't trust your patient. No. To remember it. And like, how many times have you had a patient on the table? And then after a few minutes there, and I've had people ask, do, do like police interrogators use this stuff? I'm like, (laughs) no, why? Because I feel like it's truth serum. I just want to tell you everything. I'm like, let it out. Not yeah. the first time I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Keep it coming. Yeah. Endorphins are truth term. Yeah. It's so one of the questions that um, somebody wrote to me a while ago is if we could explain the fatigue that some people feel after a treatment, where that could come from. It's, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. I think one, the, and they both come from what you mean when you say fatigue. So, so yeah. It, if you are used to being completely sympathetic dominant and you're used to operating at that speed and FSM takes your endorphins and doubles them and quiets the sympathetics 
and takes down your pain and you go from being sympathetic dominant to parasympathetic dominant and that is that fatigue or is it just not running on speed right there's that yeah the other piece is detox reaction there's mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there's we just do you remember how tight your muscles were a while ago and now they're not it all of the goo that was stored in those tight muscles when the muscles turned smushy the goo came out it headed for your liver um you you should drink some water have broccoli for dinner sleep and let me know how you feel the next day explain the broccoli and the cauliflower okay there's the phase two pathways in the liver it's phase one one half one half of how the liver operates sulfur bearing molecules are cofactors in the liver detoxification pathways so not everybody can prescribe or provide N-acetylcysteine or um, detox antiox or some mixed low dose antioxidant but everybody can eat coleslaw, broccoli, cauliflower, something with sulfur in it to provide that. The other kind of fatigue, the patients that get fatigued, headache, and nausea, you, I would be willing to bet money, because I've done it enough times, that you didn't do a vestibular exam mm-hmm. and you ran the concussion protocol. Mm. So on the custom care on clinic unit one, concussion in Vegas minus 94 is the first thing I run. If I haven't done a vestibular exam or if the patient's symptoms suggest that they have some degree of vestibular injury, I just don't run 94, 94 on them just on spec. So those are the, those are the three. One is you're just not jacked up. So get used to it. The other is might be a detox reaction. Let me know tomorrow afternoon. And the third one is 94, 94. If somebody is still tired three days later and you ran the concussion protocol, they probably have a vestibular injury that you might not have checked about. Right. I think, I think that's an important note for those of us who have, um, who run custom, custom cares in the clinic. It's so easy to slap on um, concussion protocol and then have it in on the background or set them up and do something else. But 94, 94 can elicit a a significant nausea. Um, I've had also patients that have had the nausea with almost like a panicky feeling. So I used to always kind of just hover and look at them make, until 94, 94 had ran just to see what they would feel like. Because in my experience, if they didn't react to it the first time, they're not going to react to it on the fifth time. It's usually like, it's a good litmus test right off the bat, but great little nugget of wisdom run it, have another copy of concussion minus 94. So if that patient's like, Ooh, I don't know what's running, but I don't feel great just have another one. It's so the new software, it's so easy to just like wipe out a line. Even with the old software. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Like it doesn't matter what software you're using, just take that line out and have another copy of the concussion minus 94 and 94. Yeah. No, it's just, those are the ones that I see. I'm looking at John's um, notes. It's like, I hang out with you. I left two-step snorkeling to come listen and learn. Uh, okay. I, we can get somebody to not snorkel and listen to us live. That's, uh, I feel not, good. Not snorkel it, two-step. <laughs> so two-step is this bay down by the place of refuge on the big island. It is said to be, like if you look up two-step, it is the best snorkeling in the Hawaiian Islands that has 100 foot visibility and the water is 80 feet deep. So you can count the seashells on the bottom when you're snorkeling on the surface. And just every kind of fish you can imagine, it's just, it's, so two-step is why we are doing five day long masterclass in Hawaii, thank you, Derek and John. Um, and Kevin says, what are we gonna do for two weeks? It's like, well, we're gonna start at nine in the morning. We're gonna finish about one. Y'all can do whatever you want for lunch because I'm not gonna feed you. It's like, you just go into town and get whatever you want. And we're 15 minutes from two-step. So usually, Wait, 100 foot. No, there were dolphins today. Get out. The dolphins never come to two step. Oh, and then the turtles are right next door. The turtles go into the little shallow bay over by Hono now. It's so cool. So we're going to do five day master class. I haven't figured out how much we're going to charge for it. There's a 20 person limit. And we'll do those two weeks in a row. That's my vacation. Right. And then Somebody said we should do a core seminar before the master class because you don't have to have the advanced to have the master class. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to go into a hotel in Kona that we've used before, and we will do a five-day core in the hotel, and then we'll move out to to Derek's, God bless him, and do the master class. And a master class has no slides. There are no slides. You, uh, I think we're going to. provide lined paper and pens and you can bring whatever FSM notes you want. Uh, I might give out summary sheets and it's free for all. Ask questions. That's, and that's like where all the cool learning happens is with critical thinking and I had a patient and what would you do? And it's collaborative Oh, one more question popped up before we run out of time. Paula asked, how long do you typically run 460 and 650 for patients with candida? How often do you repeat it? Okay, Paula, I'm really sorry. Candida is, um, that frequency is for candida toxin. It doesn't actually kill the candida. And candida is a nothing burger. Candida is a normal constituent of bowel contents. It is a normal constituent of fecal matter. It is very pH sensitive. So candida likes an alkaline environment. The pancreas produces 
bicarbonate at a steady state to keep your body pH normal. The stomach produces acid. So if the vagus nerve gets turned down by infection, stress, or trauma, and the vagus nerve stops telling the stomach to produce as much acid, but you have a steady state of bicarbonate, what's going to happen to your gut contents? They're gonna get more alkaline. So then what happens to the acid-loving bacteria? Oh, well, they don't do so well. And what happens to the candida that likes an alkaline environment? Candida is great. So how do you treat candida? Treat the vagus. Have the patient take digestive enzymes that contain a little bit of HCL. And you can take oil of oregano. Take something for a week that'll kill candida. And there's a lot of times when the symptoms we think of as being from candida are from vagal nerve dysfunction. Right. So rather than running candida toxin, I'd be more inclined to do that. The candida toxin frequency will get rid of the belly pain, but it's not going to last more than an hour or two. Right. So you run it for three, four, five minutes till the pain goes down, but then you run concussion in Vegas and you take 81 and 109 and you run it until the patient's pulse goes down to about 59 and then you stop. That's how to get rid of candida. Good one. Um, we have a oh, one more thing and then we've got a quote and we have to go because I have to run back to see a patient. It says, I was supporting a client with our taste and smell protocol, not getting far after day one, gain of 30% after three weeks. So I retook history, added immune support, chem detox, liver detox, all stacked together with taste and smell to run a PEMF, need a day client report to increase tinnitus. So we stopped. Okay. Day and then... Wait, the client reported an increase in tinnitus? Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Well, oh, and the next day, the yeah. client reported an increase in tinnitus. Okay, so think about, hmm. okay. Think about the cochlea. If you think about tinnitus, as phantom limb pain for the ears. I'm going to say it one more time. Tinnitus is phantom limb pain for the ears. The audiologist that does all of our vestibular testing at Good Sam, she's been there the 20 years I've been in practice. Sue Doucette says, I said, Sue, why my tinnitus is really bad. She said, yeah, it's phantom limb pain for the ears. That's great. So when the upper end of the cochlea, the high frequency end of the cochlea is the most sensitive to toxicity. And in my particular case, and in almost everybody's particular case, aspirin and Advil are ototoxic, but there are other toxins that affect the inner, the cochlea, that part. So what if, we did immune support, chemical detox, and, and liver detox all stacked together 
and it got stuck. Just because we run detoxification in the liver and remove chemicals from the kidneys or from wherever else, I don't know what program you actually ran. And we liberate chemicals that then can't be cleared by the kidneys and the liver quickly enough to detoxify them. I could make a case for that causing an increase in tinnitus. Also make sure that the patient isn't taking aspirin, Advil, maybe even curcumin in elevated doses. So that's, that would be my best guess about that. So your mistakes, and I'm not sure what your taste and smell protocol is. If the taste and smell has to do with long haul COVID, you take the virus frequencies and you run them on the ethmoid sinus and the capillaries. That virus affects the ACE2 receptors that are in the capillaries. That's why it affects smell. And taste depends on smell. So treat the capillaries, treat the ethmoid sinus and Don't throw quite so much at the wall, possibly. I like that. Don't throw. Sometimes we do. We want to throw it all there, but taking it bite by bite, bit by bit. All right. My closing quote for today. Oh, I love these. And it's very simple, but I think it's good for all the people, all the practitioners that think we all have to have it all figured out. It says you don't have to be perfect to be amazing. Oh, I like that. It's super simple. I know sometimes I have very deep ones. Sometimes I have like, I don't know if anybody ever watched Saturday Night Live back in the day, but they had like these deep thoughts and they never made sense and they were all kind of twisted. So I feel like I'm that person, but um, I'm a big quote person. And sometimes it just, as practitioners, you don't have to have it a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, right? Like you don't have to be perfect to be amazing. So that's my quote. Well, and Every patient encounter is a learning experience. Totally. It's a blessing. We get to learn so much from our patients yeah. and be better every day from all the stumbles that we make. I like that. Well, well, this went by way too fast once again. So oh. we will be back next week at the right time. Thank you everybody for joining us one hour later. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, and we have to, at this point, we have to acknowledge that the reason we started at five instead of four was that I am not a bus driver. I, I don't have the bandwidth to do what you do. And I don't, it's, this is so much fun doing it together. I would not willingly doing it by myself. So it's on, yes, happy to do it at five instead of four, but we'll be back at four next week. Yes, we will. Perfect. Oh, we got a quote before we go. My quote, careful for your worry. Your dark room of the mind will develop those thoughts. Ooh, that's a deep one, John. Thank you. Good for thought. Let's hold that here. Yes, you create that which you think about. Correct. You focus on. You create that which you focus on. So I wanted, I was thinking, gee, I'd love to stay another couple of days in Italy. But I I was already... And then I get an email at five o'clock, actually at nine o'clock at night, saying that KLM canceled my flight for the next day. Oh, 
Surprise. <laughs> all right. Bye, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Enjoy. Thanks, sweetie. Bye. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.